Hi, this is Terry McFinn. You will remember me. I'm in the corners of your mind. Pam, the girl on the meetup from the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I'm appearing on geeksoftheindustry.com. Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to witness some scenes from the next attraction to play this. This picture, truly one of the most unusual ever filmed, contains scenes which under no circumstances should be viewed by anyone with a heart condition or anyone who is easily appeased. We urgently recommend that if you are such a person, or the parent of a young or impressionable child now in attendance, that you and the child leave the auditorium for the next... Features, a horror discussion from geeksoftheindustry.com. And now your host, Chunky Larry. Greetings, fellow insomniacs, and welcome to an incredibly special episode of the Creature Features Podcast on geeksoftheindustry.com. I'm your host, my name is Chunky Larry, and if you can hear the excitement in my voice, it is because I have legitimately a screen icon with me on the show today. Uh, this person has faced down with a leprechaun, with a stepfather, with Leatherface, and with Victor Crowley, uh, and, and with flying sharks. So, let's just say, <laughs> <laughs> we've got ourselves a, a big deal conversation that's about to happen. I'm extremely pleased, excited, and just can't wait to say, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Caroline Williams, how you doing? Hi, Larry. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. Oh, I, I thank you for being on the show. I, this is this is one of the you when you do these things at the podcast, you always have these kind of idealized. Uh, you know, beliefs of how you're gonna. Oh, I'm, I'm gonna talk to this person and that person, but it's 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 like dreaming. You know, like I, I have a list that I put together of dream interviews and conversations, and your name is literally like top five of that list. 
So I am very flattered because I know I'm probably in good company. Yes, yes, you are. <laughs> and uh, I, I literally, whenever, whenever I am able to click somebody off of that list, it's, it's, it's almost like, is this really, is this really my life now? <laughs> and so uh, I know that you've had that experience kind of throughout your career because you've been able, like I'd said, you know, in the introduction, to do just about everything that you could possibly want to do within the world of entertainment, specifically uh, horror cinema. And, and one name that I left off the list is Michael Myers. Uh, you've, you've done literally everything. And it's, it's just, it's phenomenal to me because I, I as, as a fan, am always, and I've, I've said this about uh, a lot of the time, uh, whenever I talk about films uh, that I look at, actors, actresses, and directors as, like, baseball cards. Like, um, and what about, what I mean by that is that, you know, you, you have, like, heroes that kind of play in one pool, but you never expect them to dip into other pools, and you've been able to dip into just about every pool, which is, is really interesting. <laughs> um, and, and I kind of, I'm, I'm curious as to how that whole thing got started. I know you grew up in Texas. But what what was the what was the thing that made you say I'm going to try this movie thing? Well, I I had been working uh, in the offices of a of a production services company in Houston. Um, Urban Cowboy had come to town, and several other films, European films, American films, you know, productions coming in from L.A. And uh, every time we worked with a particular crew, director, whatever, they would always say things like, wow, you've got this cool personality, you've got a great voice, and so on. You should give the, the acting game a try. And I finally thought, you know what, I think I will, and uh, started going to Chris Wilson's Studio for Actors, which was sort of the premier actor studio in Houston at the time. And within months, I landed my first acting role with Louis Maul, who was an internationally famous and esteemed French director, and he was responsible for Atlantic City, Pretty Baby, Au Revoir Les Enfants, and he was shooting Alamo Bay down in Corpus with um, Ed Harris and Amy Madigan, who had recently married. So went down to Corpus Christi, played a really nice supporting role that normally would have gone to an L.A. actress, and it sort of launched me in a direction that I didn't expect it because it was high profile and um, he was such a, a, a glamour director uh, in the 80s, 70s and 80s. Um, I came to the attention of a lot of different people and within an incredibly short period of time, uh, I had moved to Dallas. I shot some movies there, some of which were also runaway productions from LA, working for LA directors. Uh, notably, Legend of Billie Jean, another one called Getting Even with uh, Edward Albert and Joe Don Baker uh, for Dwight Little, who would later go on to direct one of the Halloween franchise films. Um, so, you know, um, and, and the amazing thing is um, the, the Helen Slater film that I mentioned, um, um, Legend oh, of Billie Jean. Legend of Billie Jean uh, has had an enormous resurgence even this year uh, and last year. So 
you know, movies have such cultural resonance. People see them, they embrace them, and they introduce their children and their friends to them. And it's the reason that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre has had such an unusually long life. It does stand out as one of the franchise films. Um, its title and its characters are owned by Sony, who have never relinquished those particular rights um, to to filmmakers to to reboot. Mm-hmm. Fans can do fan versions of films, but to to date, there has not been a an honest sort of re-rendering of of Chainsaw Two. Um, you know, it was just valuable to me as an actress to move along quickly in the state of Texas and. And and then come to L.A. with uh, Chainsaw 2. And I immediately launched into uh, doing a lot of television um, and and meeting a lot of directors along the way and actors and, and becoming a part of the business here. So, you know, now I've been here 31 years and uh, I've enjoyed, like you said, I've gotten to dip into a lot of different pools and meet a lot of different people and and have a life here. And uh, I'm married. I had kids. I'm now divorced. My children are grown. Um, and I'm launching once again, uh, more specifically back into the horror genre because that's what I'm best known for. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm having a terrific time getting a little bit more into the production game and owning some of the product and and um, and doing that. Uh, but it's it's just it's a genre that is so broad so deep, um, so wide. Um, you know, the number one film in America is Insidious, and it stars Lynn Shay, who's 74 years old and a woman. I don't think it's ever been a better time to be me in the business. So I, I'm really enjoying um, what the last years have brought to me. And uh, you, you touched on something when you brought up Insidious uh, and the the changing of the perspective of what it is to be a woman in Hollywood, uh, specifically in the early to late 80s, uh, there was this kind of mindset that at a certain age, you you stop getting the interesting roles and you start getting like, oh, I'm just somebody's mom. And... And that, I feel, is something that was just a, just an awful way of looking at, at the female experience, because there's, there's something, in my opinion, much more than, you know, oh, I'm, I'm a mother, I'm a wife, you know, there, there are stories that aren't necessarily being told, and a lot of the times, uh, you know, there's this mindset that a female-driven action film can't be, you know, well received. But then you look at something like Atomic Blonde, which did, and uh, I, I I usually do this where I put John Wick and Atomic Blonde side by side. Atomic Blonde made more money than the first John Wick. Second John Wick made a ton of money, but it was off the strength of the first John Wick. But Atomic Blonde, on its own merits, being a fil- a female led action picture, you know, is doing phenomenal work. They're already talking about doing a sequel. And it, it just, it paints this idea that, you know, there's an audience that wants to see this, specifically a female audience. And, and I have that same belief with the horror genre as well, that there's always been this kind of preconceived notion as to what 
horror means for a female. And in the sense that, you know, people look at the horror genre on the surface level and they only see women in distress and they don't see the fact that, you know, the, the same women that are in distress are overcoming adversity and then, and you always have the final girl, not the final guy. So I've always considered the horror genre to be kind of more of a feminist driven, uh, entertainment system rather than, you know, dramas or action films. I, I think that you get a lot more of that in the action genre and that's changing now, which is refreshing. But how do you feel as far as being an actress and working within kind of both sides of the fence um, with the representation of women. And do you have any opinions in regards to that? Well, the, the luxury of horror is that it does afford so many action opportunities for actresses. When you go back to Judy O'Day's character in Night of the Living Dead, um, you know, she does go into a catatonic state, but she is brought out of that by a black man that she joins forces with to fight the zombies that are assaulting that singular house in the middle of nowhere. Um, you go back to that singular house in the middle of nowhere and you find uh, Marilyn Burns' character, um, instead of being an active victim, she is an active antagonist to the unlikely, in my mind, protagonist of Leatherface in the film because he is that strange and quirky uh anti-hero that, um, you know, people embrace and reject as the monster in the movie. The monsters, uh, one thing about the monster genre is, is um, or going back to the universal monsters as well, there's always a woman in there who's trying to help entice or change that monster. Um, and going back even further to pre-code days when Dorothy Arzner and... Um, um, oh God, I wanted to say Marion Davies, but in fact, yes, Marion Davies. Uh, there were so many female um, writers, producers, directors in the 20s uh, where women were uh, very integral to the action that takes place in the storylines. The established tropes of, of story, I think, started to get really well-worn late 40s and 50s. Um, but horror has always afforded that opportunity for women to be integral to the action and, and spin that plot like a top. And it's one of the things that is still attracts me to the genre, um, vigorous, strong, capable women, uh, doing all the things that men do, um, in many ways, joining with men frequently, uh, or being the antagonists of men. Um, I'm not much of a feminist. I've traveled the road of feminism into humanism. I'm the mother of sons. Mm -hmm. So gender stereotypes and gender roles don't register with me. I look for story. I look for plot opportunities. I look for strong scenes. I do look for action. Um, you know, women are in better physical, mental, spiritual, frankly, sexual shape than they've ever been in, uh, which is why Lynn Shay at 74 can pound through those doors, do battle with those monsters. She's a physical character in Insidious. It's invigorating and it's in, and it's fun and um, more so than what is more static in many ways than television. But television 
uh, does a lot of the same things. Women are out there uh, taking part. I don't subscribe to the woman is a victim philosophy anymore so much. I think it's a part of the psychology of a singular group of women mm-hmm. um, that's eagerly promoted. We are victims. You have done things to us. There's a curious status that goes with it among other women. Certainly not among men. Um, you know, I men have been integral to the progress of my career and have been extraordinarily helpful to me. I have not suffered the indignities or the sexual harassment or assaults that a lot of women have been talking about lately. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, a guy will give you a come on, but nothing stronger than that has ever happened to me. And I had a very responsible and protective group of agencies um, who would never have sent me to a fucking hotel, um, who would never have sent me to a private re- residence. Um I do need to point out, I never entered the world of Miramax. I was never a part of that uh, world. I was always a journeyman, working class actor. And they don't have time to pursue that shit. Um, at least they didn't with me. So, um, yeah, my my take on things is probably a little bit different. I I've never not seen women in horror as being less than or... Victimized, they've always been very strong protagonists and antagonists. You know, uh, Billy Whitelaw's character in The Omen, she's an evil bitch. Um, yes. You know, I've got to, yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, there have always been evil and scary women that, uh, you know, they're usually a, a sort of witch mode, but, uh, you know, they've always, even the Wizard of Oz has the Wicked Witch of the West. There's always been a character like that. In one form or another, um, uh, in in movies, you know, the nun in the Conjuring series, um, I, I like I like that. I like a broad diversity of characters, and uh, it's never been a better time, in my estimation, to be a woman. You and, know? and you had uh, you had talked uh, kind of slightly about getting more into the production elements. I know that Felissa Rose is also doing a lot of that stuff where she's producing, like she produced the uh, music video you did for Slayer, uh, Pride and Prejudice. Yes, she did. That's when we first really met. We had always been on the uh, convention circuit together, Mm. but even though there are, there is time sometimes between signing spells and fan (laughs) events and, and convention events, um, it doesn't leave a lot of time for a lot of genuine bonding. And, uh, it wasn't until I would say last year, year before when we shot the Slayer video and then afterwards really took the time to seek one another out on the convention circuit. We really bonded as friends and found that we had so much in common philosophically, spiritually, mentally, humor, personality. We're, we're two opposite sides of the same coin, basically. And, uh, she has been a real inspiration to me. She simply moved into producing, got the word out. That's what she wanted to do. She attracted some financing. Uh, she is very expert at organizing herself. She is in constant production on one thing or another. And we have now forged a bit of a little business bond where we're some, pursuing some projects together. And it's been a wonderful education for me to discover all the things that I really do know about production and all the people I know who can facilitate those things. So 
that's that's one of the greater gifts that I've enjoyed in the last couple of years is her friendship. Um, she is more fun than anybody I know. We get together. It's just a, you know, it's a laugh a minute. We talk over each other. Uh, I love her husband. I love her kids. Um, we spent part of New Year's Eve together. Just a wonderful, wonderful gal. And her kids actually played your kids in the music video, which I thought was I very know, it was so fun. And I was directed by B.J. McDonald, who directed me in Hatchet 3. Yes. And an Easter egg in Victor Crowley, which is basically Hatchet 4, where Felissa has one of the stronger roles um, in that film. So if you haven't seen Victor Crowley, download it today. It's everywhere. And uh, speaking of Hatchet 3, you are, in essence returning to the character that really uh, launched you into the stratosphere of uh, public consciousness, and I'm talking, of course, about Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Uh, was there was there any belief as far as, you know, that this is kind of like a full circle moment for you, or was it just kind of another job? I mean, because uh, to me, the Hatchet films are the perfect example of this kind of uh, slasher film renaissance that I feel we're on without a lot of people really referring to it as a renaissance, but that's absolutely what it is. Well, it, it we, we have gone back to the 80s. That was very much a preferred period for the fans. You know, the thing that's beautiful about the convention circuit is you meet your fans firsthand. They have a chance to tell you what it is they like and what they don't like. Mm. And so filmmakers and directors and writers and actors, uh, comic book uh, people, tattoo artists, painters, sculptors, musicians, you've got everybody in the mix. And you get to find out what is selling, what is desirable, and what is not. And the fans told us loud and clear, get away from CGI. We love the artistry of the handmade special effects we want to go back to. Uh, Tom Savini and uh, and and the miracles that that man's been able to create over uh, over decades. Um, we want strong stories. We want strong characters. We want to get to know those characters. We want you to take your time. We want you to scare the shit out of us, shit out of us. But we want some suspense and we want some uh, um, terrific plot twists. Um, so the 80s style of filmmaking is is back to the forefront, and I think it's part of the reason that, that we 80s gals and guys are, are enjoying a, a wonderful time right now is, uh, is we're, we're doing that, you know. And um, the beauty of Adam Green writing that character for me was the continuation of Jeff Burr, including me in Leatherface, the third Chainsaw mm-hmm. film um, that was written by David J. Scow, who also wrote The Crow, an amazing writer. Um, you know, he brought Stretch back, uh, basically inhabiting the role that Lefty had left behind. And uh, um, I got to basically do my little version of Dennis Hopper for 27 quick seconds. But Adam was inspired. The character has always been so popular. And... Um, I think people wanted to experience her again, her curiosity and her, her, you know, heedless rush pell-mell into finding things out and watching that story unfold again. 
And I got to have a tremendous scene with Sid Haig, which was a bucket list item for me, for sure. Um, Understandably so. But, uh, yeah, he, he brought her back really strong in Hatchet 3. And uh, I, I really enjoyed revisiting the character, bringing her back to life, and, and taking her all the way. Yeah. And uh, talking kind of, again, uh, about this kind of uh, resurgence of this style of film, I... I I had kind of had this uh, this belief that, that kind of uh, just in conversation fell out of my mouth, and and, and I and I want to pose this to you: Do you feel that the fact that we've become such a politically correct and offended society that horror is a mirror of that in the sense that you know? within the horror genre, we went very far in the 80s, and we went so far that we had to pull back within the 90s and early 2000s. And then now, because everything is so PC and and everything is so very much um, prudish, almost, is kind of the word that I go for, that horror has to um, go the opposite way. It has to be that... that <clears throat> that expulsion of everything that's kind of pent up because that is necessary. You, you need that Avenue to kind of exercise all of that evil that is because there's, there's legitimate fear uh, politically in the world with everything that's going on. You know, you need some sort of, of outsource for, everything that you're feeling inside that you can't necessarily scream or just say there, there's there's much more of a filter now so horror has to in turn be unfiltered what do you feel about that um well it was that way back in the 80s as well there's always been the sort of prudery police that have been out there um women motivate a lot of that i'm not necessarily slamming women but um, I think women have an instinct to be more protective of themselves and you get to lose a lot of that, uh, caution when you're, when you're doing, when you're doing horror films, because horror films are not about caution. They're about offending as many people as you possibly can sometimes, which I personally like. I was the spitball thrower at my elementary school and not much has <laughs> changed. Um, you know, when we shot the, the ice tub scene with the chainsaw between my legs, Women were outraged. We got phone calls. Uh, you know, Playboy wanted to do a, a layout with me. Um, you know, women's studies had just become the big hot new thing on college campuses. And so women were really angry that I was assaulted with a chainsaw. Um, you know, they didn't seem to watch the entire scene play out because they would have seen what happened. But, uh, you know, it was a purely sexual moment that a lot of uh, women were really, really um, uncomfortable with. But but it worked like a charm because, uh, you know, Stretch very decisively turns the tables um, on her on her sexual harasser. Um, so, you know, you're always going to have that. And and like I said, I, you know, and there there are impulses even within the horror community to go. Um, to a very political place and take a political position on something mm -hmm. in some way. I think, though, uh, distributors and marketers and writers and producers know that um, going in that direction makes us sort of like everyone else. 
and you know that'll be reflected in ticket sales. Mm-hmm. Um, we represent that broad swath of fans between New York and LA. I'm not saying that there aren't any fans in New York and LA. There are, but everybody else in the country who have this crazy mix of opinions because I travel in the middle a lot because I have family there. And everybody's got a different opinion on every frickin' thing you can possibly think of. And uh, it keeps those conversations percolating. I think it's important for filmmakers to represent that. I think it makes life more interesting. It makes horror more interesting. But the basic elements are the struggle between good and evil, always. They are morality tales, horror films. Toby Hooper used to say that horror is just the next incarnation of the Western. Um, it's good and evil doing battle with themselves, good and evil doing battle within the souls of, of individual men and women, uh, having to wrestle with what uh, is alive within us. So they're wonderful morality tales, and um, every popular film that I see, every film that gets a lot of eyeballs, um, has that same basic formula. We're human beings, we live in, a, in the world, the world is not always within our control, um, and we do have to establish certain boundaries and parameters and behaviors that keep us from killing each other. So horror gets to take those boundaries, parameters, and and uh, behaviors away. And you get to see what lies beneath, so to speak. And uh, you... you th- that's That was a perfect answer, by the way. Uh, but uh, you brought up something that I... One of my favorite scenes in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. And it, when I had initially seen it, and, and I talked about this when I did my review of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, I was kind of blossoming as, as a young man. And, um, it was a very conflicted summer for me because it was this film and, uh, to bring back Felissa Rose, Sleepaway Camp. And both films were, were these, you know, they they touch on these issues that I don't think I was necessarily mature enough to understand at the time, but they both kind of affected me in a way that I didn't necessarily understand. And and in hindsight, looking at the that particular moment, um, the fact that Stretch leans in against that abuse and it it throws Leatherface off. Because he's used to people cringing away from him and, and being frightened by him. And she, rather than doing that, is very much like Fei Rey and King Kong, you know, uh, able to capture the, the imagination of this monster, for lack of a better term. And that's, that's kind of the strength of that film. Uh, was it, was it something that you and Toby had discussed when you guys were working on the film? Is that you guys were going to kind of have this almost um, Beauty and the Beast kind of relationship? Or was that just something that organically happened? Uh, no, it was everything was fully scripted. Uh, certainly we had opportunities to, you know, stretch and, and pardon the pun, <laughs> um... And, 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 and play with it a little bit. But the whole idea was is Leatherface falls in love. And, uh, you know, it's not necessarily reciprocated. It is utilized as a means of escaping, uh, mortal danger. So, uh, she uses her sexuality and her seductive techniques to, to, uh, 
take control of the situation and um, and uh, escape. Um, and she uses that opportunity to go investigate. Um, but um, yeah, it was all it, like I said, it was all scripted. You know, there was certainly rehearsal because the uh, radio station set was built specifically for the film and was then torn down. And uh, we were only able to shoot Leatherface sawing down the interior one time. So after we shot the seduction scene, uh, they had to go into that very complex and very important um, and one time only deconstruction of the interior. So, um, you know, it was all laid out and, uh, um, you know, and, and pretty much went off without a hitch. And going forward, uh, you talked about it uh, kind of briefly, uh, wanting to be involved more behind the scenes, but you're also doing some really interesting work, uh, specifically uh, Blood Feast, which just looks phenomenal. I've, I've yet to be able to see it. I've I'm actually waiting on a copy of it. Uh, and Oh, believe me, all of us are. We are trapped in Hanover House distributorship hell. Um, they were likely not the best choice for us and for our film. Mm-hmm. Um, they've had us. They've been in possession of our film since April last year. Um, you know, I'm, I'm personally hopeful that... Uh, we will be able to sort of break our bonds with them and move on to somebody who can be more effective in marketing us and getting us into theaters and getting us out in front of an audience. We went through an extensive MPAA editing process that was quite unfortunate. And then, like I said, Hanover House uh, has just not been giving us the love. So hopefully we'll be moving to a different distributor. I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Um, We will find out soon. Uh, Blood Feast is a remarkably good film. It's got an international feel. Robert Russler plays the lead. Um, I play his wife, Sophie Monk, who is an international star, plays our daughter. Um, the goddess Ishtar is played by Sadie Katz, who's from Long Term Six. We had a remarkably good time shooting in Germany and in Paris. And uh, it's a terrific film. Herschel Gordon Lewis Never got to see it, sadly, but he did shoot a pretty significant um, little uh, bit of exposition for the film. And what a charming and lovely man. Um, The next thing, actually, you will likely see from me, uh, even before you will see Blood Feast, is Greenlight, which is a talk story production. Talk Story is a new production company that was created by Eric Englund of Contracted Madison County in the upcoming Josie. Mm -hmm. Um, He's an amazing filmmaker, uh, one of my favorite writers, producers, directors. He also did Get the Girl, uh, co-written with Graham Denman. Graham is the director of Greenlight. It is his directorial debut. And Greenlight is a remarkable film. I call it neo-noir. It's a, it's a noir-oriented film with a lot of horror elements. It features Chris Browning from the new David Ayer film Bright on Netflix, mm-hmm. uh, which is a huge hit. He was also in Westworld and a variety of other things, a, an actor with a very hot career right now, and I loved playing his wife. I'm at the centerpiece of the film. Eric did write it around my character, and... Uh, Talk Story is an exciting new company that 
Eric created with Greg and Pamela Blunden. They're real estate developers here in L.A. They want to launch new talent and get new directors and new writers out in front of the public. And uh, it's really an exciting company. Greenlight is going to be their first offering. We're going to start on the festival circuit in February. I'm hoping we will have some screenings soon. Um, I hope critics screeners will be going out soon. Um, I had the time of my life on this one. Um, lots of psychological horror, but some action as well. So I think people will like that. One of the other things that is just broken today, actually last night, Jeremy Saffer is a pretty remarkable metal and rock and roll photographer. He's probably the premier photographer um, on the scene right now. He shoots covers for Outburn, Revolver, Kerrang, Metal Hammer. Um, very dynamic. He did a, a 2,000 shot, 10 hour um, uh, shoot with me uh, almost a year ago, back in February. And we did a whole variety of amazing photographs. Um, we did an abundance of corpse paint photos, which is a totally nude venue. Mm. We have stretch with clothes on. We have stretch with clothes off. We did fine art nudes. Um, we did some uh, stuff where I look like the stretch of old. But uh, you know, the saw is always my friend, and it's pretty prominent in a lot of a lot of the shots. Um, That's the stuff those, you posted on Instagram, correct? Exactly. They are. Uh, there's a ten page photo layout in The Graven, which is Jeremy's new magazine. He wanted to feature his work and those of other artists, but mostly the stuff that he's doing for the rock magazines. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to be having an exhibition, I think, here in L.A. that'll feature uh, some of his more terrific photos of rock stars, and I'll be featured as well. Um, there's also a magazine, new magazine called Expressions, which also has some of the shots in it. And... I have a new European convention booking agency called Convention Connections, um, and they will be booking me um, probably along with Felissa Rose, to tell you the truth. Uh, we're going to be doing some touring across the country with Victor Crowley, my photos, um, and of course, the careers that we've already had uh, beginning this year. So uh, that's an exciting and cool thing. It's yeah, I hope you guys come to Northern California. <laughs> well, you know, I know they have conventions up there. Somebody needs to invite me. I, I'm gonna, I'm John gonna get on Brightman. that for you, and in I'm gonna US? talk to your people. My in people are gonna US? call your people. <laughs> in the U.S., in the U.S., John Brightman of Bright Star Productions reps me in the continental U.S. So uh, that would be the connection for that. Um, you know, I've also got another project. In, I've got projects in development with Zero Gravity Management. They represent Darren Lynn Bowsman, Adam Robitel, Eric England, and a, a pretty significant chunk of the premier horror film directors that are currently working. So uh, you'll be you'll be seeing a whole lot more of me uh, going forward, especially this year. So it's it's a really exciting and terrific time. Um, wanted to let you know on social media, you guys can find me under the same name on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr. Uh, my handle is Willie Caroline. It is spelled W-I-L-L-I-C-A-R-O-L-I-N-E. That's W-I-L-L-I-C-A-R-O-L-I-N-E on Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr. 
Um, yeah, that's that's my world, Larry. Thank you so much for bringing me on your show today. I appreciate it. Oh, it was a, the pleasure was literally all mine. Um, if you guys are here <laughs> just for Caroline, uh, which I don't blame you, but you've enjoyed the show, you want to find out more. <laughs> Uh, you can absolutely check us out facebook.com forward slash creature pod follow us on twitter and instagram at creature pod uh, but that is going to do it for us this was I, I if you could see my hand it's shaking uh, that's how excited <laughs> I am this was a dream come true for me uh, I want to thank you again uh, Caroline for uh, being as giving as you are with your time and uh, I look forward to everything you have coming up. Definitely can't wait to see Greenlight and absolutely can't wait to see Blood Feast once they figure out what's going on with that. Uh, I, I tell you, we, we barely made it through the MPAA process. They ordered six edits. They removed close to six minutes of film so that we could try to make the R rating. I have a strong feeling you will be seeing a theatrical release of the director's cut. I'm mm -hmm. keeping my fingers crossed for that. Because um, the special effects by Ryan and Megan Nicholson are probably some of the best that you will ever see. The realism of our film <clears throat> is an enormous part of the storyline and of the attraction for marketing the film. And I'm keeping my fingers crossed that that will, that that will happen. Um, you know, there's so much coming ahead, Larry, uh, for me, for Felissa, for so many of us. Uh, do keep me in mind in the coming year. I'd love to come back on the show. I've You're, enjoyed it enormously today. The door is always open for you. <laughs> I, I, you, you don't even need to chainsaw it down. You are welcome whenever <laughs> you want. Um, by all means. And, uh, again, thank you very much for Caroline Williams and for myself. Again, my name is Chunky. This has been another episode of the Creature Features Podcast on geeksoftheindustry.com, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Listen with someone you trust. Nice. K-O-K-L-A So here's a special request we're doing this afternoon and tonight. You steady listeners know we're playing this every hour. This is for Lefty.
not me, are you? You're not really mad at me. How good are you? Are you really, really good? Oh, <laughs> 